Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, we have got a great treat today. We have got Bishop E.W. Jackson with us all the way from Virginia. Hey, would you, would you stand up? Give him a warm welcome. And Bishop, bring us the word. Praise Amen. God, praise God. <laughs> Thank you so much, Pastor Dwayne. Thank you, Jeannie. Thank all of you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I'm coming back to you again uh, after the first service this morning. And um, the Lord is leading me in a slightly different way, although I'm going to stick with the same theme that I began with this morning. Uh, it's just an honor to be here, first of all. And thank you all so much for the great hospitality. I love coming. Where I live, we only get snow every several years, and we got snow just before I left. So I left snow, and I'm back in snow. But I want you all to know I'll come even when it's snowing. Praise God. <laughs> we have a table in the back, and uh, you can stop by and, and uh, meet our folks back there and, and see some of the things that we have for our organization stand, staying true to America's national destiny, uh, as well as um, some materials that we've got back there. By the way, pray for me. We've got a new book. It's not out yet, but it will be coming. Maybe I'll have a chance to come back when, after the book is out. Uh, it's called Sweet Land of Liberty, Reflections of a Patriot Descended from Slaves. And I'm excited about that book. Um, I believe it's an answer to much of what we hear going on in our culture today. Uh, and I praise God for the opportunity to get it out. So, so you all be praying for us as we sort put the final. Uh, the book is written in, in the hands of publishers, uh, but we're now, of course, getting the, the final touches put on it to get it ready for release. I'm just not exactly sure when that will be. But please keep us in your prayers. We do solicit those. All right, praise God. Well, let's get right back to the Word because I've got an assignment here, and I want to get my assignment done at the time that I have to get it done. Uh, so I want to call your attention to one verse of Scripture in Romans eleven twenty nine, and it says, and by the way, I read from the New King James Version, so you may have a slightly different version, and, but if it reads fundamentally different, get rid of that thing, get yourself a good Bible. Um, but it says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I want to talk to you for a few, a few moments from this subject. What will you do with the gift? What will you do with the gift? Now, in our home, in one of the guest rooms is a desk. It's a small desk, only sits yay high and, and uh, not made of any special material. Uh, not any great workmanship. In fact, recently my wife and I had it repaired a little bit so that it would, it would at least be functional. Not that I use it, but, but we didn't want it to fall apart. If someone were to come in and to rob our house, they'd probably overlook it because it's nothing particularly valuable that anybody else would want. And yet, it means a great deal to me. Uh, some of you have heard my story. In fact, I told it this morning is how I was 
born into a, a, a broken and impoverished family and shuttled around in foster care for the first few months of my life and at the age of 14 months was placed in a foster home, the home of Willie and Rebecca Molette. And I was raised by them until the age of 10 years old. And after having pretty much ruined myself academically by uh, getting involved with the wrong crowd and, and my, my foster parents really could not control me, uh, I was resentful because I was angry that my mother wasn't there for me. I rarely saw her and that my father wasn't raising me. I did see him. He did come and visit, but I wasn't living with him. And, and I was extremely rebellious. My foster parents would try to punish me. I'd run away, go find somebody to, to stay with and make excuses to their parents and lie to them. And instead of going to school, I went out and hung with my friends. And some of the very people that I hung out with that time, um, Herman Cooper, for example, is one person I can name who was a, a member of my little gang at the age of 10 years old who ended up going to jail for murder, killing a, a, another of my friends named Rabbit, and others uh, ended up in prison. And at that time, we were admiring the people who had gone to prison and gotten out. Those were our heroes. Those were the guys we looked up to because they were tough, and, and people sidestepped them when they walked down the street. And at the age of 10, my father swept into my life and literally took me out of foster care. And it was a, a, the, one of the greatest days of my life because the, the trajectory of my life changed dramatically. Um, and whatever success I've had, of course, aside from the grace of Almighty God in my life, was because of the teaching of my father. Well, let me tell another part of that story now. So I finally land in Harvard Law School as a result of his tutelage. My father had a sixth grade education, worked in Sunship Building and Dry Dock Company. But he taught me focus and discipline and high expectations. And, and so I ended up going to Harvard Law School. By the way, this is a side story, when I got ready to apply to Harvard Law School, um, I was graduating from college, summa cum laude, with Phi Beta Kappa, and I went to my professors, well-meaning people, and told them, I said, hey, I want to go to Harvard Law School, and, every, and I wanted a letter of recommendation from them. Every single one of them said the same thing. I wouldn't get my hopes up about going to Harvard Law School. Why not? Because, you see, you have to go through a standardized test called the LSAT, the Law School Admissions Test. And black people don't do well on standardized tests in America. So I would lower my sights and try to apply to a school that that's not important and that you're more likely to get into. Well, because of the way I was raised, when they told me that, I just became that much more determined. I thought my father hadn't taught me to lay down and roll over and, oh, you can't because... I just, I, that just made me angry. And I just said, well, now I really am determined to go to Harvard Law School. Uh, and by the way, you know, they said because it's culturally biased. And I thought to myself, well, according to what I've been told, my ancestors have been in this country for 200 years. I think I've got the culture down pat. I mean, so at any rate, I was working at a law firm, Harvard uh, 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 sent me to a law firm uh, during the summer. Well, I ended up going to a law firm during the summer of my first year in college and stayed with my father that summer. 
my wife and I were living with our first child in Massachusetts, but we stayed with him. And before I left, my father shared something with me because when he took me as a child, he was not saved. But he was one of these, like a lot of Americans, he believed in God, believed that God was real, believed that all human beings were answerable to him, but he hadn't surrendered his life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so he wasn't saved, he wasn't living for God. But by the time I was staying at his house that summer, he had actually surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and was saved. I was not. He didn't make me go to church when he was raising me, and so I had stayed out of church and didn't want to have anything to do with it pretty much. And, and so my father said to me just before I left, he said, by the way, son, you know what I'm doing? I said, what? He said, I'm reading the Bible from cover to cover. And I said, oh, wow, that's great. Now, I'm thinking to myself, you know, my, this, his heathen son now, thinking, that's nice. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, got in my car, and my wife and I packed up. And on the way home, literally, I found myself thinking about what he said. And I thought, you know what? Maybe as a Harvard intellectual, since I'm try I was trying at that point to read all the great books, I said, and the Bible is clear one of the, clearly one of the great books. I ought to try to read the Bible too because after all, it might come up at cocktail parties and between sips of white wine, I want to comment intelligently on it. And that's what I was thinking. But the Holy Spirit had something else in mind. Somebody asked me earlier about my salvation I got home in September of 1976 and began to read the Bible that my daddy had given me. My father gave me a big Bible, which had been gathering dust in the closet. And I took it out, laid it on the coffee table, and said, well, let me go ahead and start reading this. And I started reading it. And my brothers and sisters, by the time I got to October and was reading about David in the Psalms, something began to happen. I didn't understand it, but I was coming under conviction. I, I, I hear David, this man's man, and ladies, you all will forgive me, but I was one of these guys who really believed that church was great for women and children, but men had more important things to do. Um, and my wife would come home from church and walk through the door, and I'd be sitting in our little apartment living room, my feet propped up on the table, a beer in my hand, and I'd sneer at her when she walked through, and said, how much of my money did you give that preacher today? We didn't have any money. <laughs> And my wife would look at me and just shake her head, poor thing, demon possessed right up to the eyeballs. <laughs> but by December of that year, on this 22nd of December, I did a lot of things that happened between, but to short, shorten the story, it is an old song that says, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. And I, God had filled our bedroom. I mean, he was there. I couldn't see him with my physical eyes, but the question that I've been posing, because during that time, I had this, this simple prayer, God, if you're real, show me. Show me what you showed David that made him say, oh God, you are my God, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. 
When I think of you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore, under the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. And I wanted to know what would make this tough man, this warrior, this fighter, this man's man talk about God in such tender terms. And I would challenge God, if you're real, show me. And that morning I woke up and he had shown me. I got up and walked into the little bedroom of my son where my wife was sweeping the floor and tapped my wife on the shoulder and I said, you know what? My little beautiful church-going wife looked up to me real sweetly and said, what? I said, I think I'm saved. And my wife literally said, what? I said, I don't know what is going on. I said, but God is doing something in my life. I want to go to church with you. Where do you go to church? I'm serious, saints. My wife took three steps back, looked me up down, said, you ain't going with me. She told my mother-in-law, poor thing, Harvard Law School's too much for him. He had a nervous breakdown. He woke up this morning talking about Jesus. But you know what? I hadn't lost my mind. I'd found it. I went, to ch- I went to church that morning, that Sunday morning, by myself and sat up in the balcony. And when Reverend Brandon said, are there any here who would come and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I sprinted to the altar and I laid there and wept as the load of sin was just lifted off of me. And I found out everything I was looking for, I found in him. I now realize that he was indeed everything the Bible says he is and that I was saved. I went back to Harvard Law School that January and it got to be like the parting of the Red Sea when I walked down the hallway. They would say, here he comes, get out of his way because he's going to talk to you about Jesus. My brothers and sisters, my daddy not only rescued me out of a situation that was a a a, a tragic trajectory and change my culture and my attitude. But my father was also the greatest influence in me getting saved in the fact that I'm now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that desk that sits in my house is valuable to me if it's not valuable to anybody else, not because of the wood and the metal, but because of the one who gave it to me. I treasure that gift because it's from my beloved daddy. And I'm here today to tell you that God showed me that the United States of America is a gift from our heavenly father. And if we love him, we ought to treasure the gift that God has given us. Now look, every single one of us who is here by virtue of our ancestors or somebody who came here before us, is not here by luck. We're not here by happenstance. But the Bible says in Acts 17, 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and determine their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. My brothers and sisters, you and I are here by divine appointment. And we've been given this nation as a divine gift. And God expects us to be stewards of what he's given us. My wife and I just had that desk refurbished because to me, in treasuring my father's memory, 
that gift matters, and I want to I want to maintain it. I want to ma- keep it. I want to pass it on, frankly, to my grandchildren. And if you are an American, you've got to understand you're not here by accident. God put you here. And I know there are people around the country, and I get letters from them just pretty much every week, who tell me how crazy I am as an American of African ancestry to think this way. But you see, the Bible tells me that I'm not here because of slavery. I'm here because God determined before the foundation of the world exactly where he wanted me to be and when he wanted me to be there, and God placed me here. And whoever you are, the same is true for you. Is there a single American who can honestly say, oh, my life would have been so much better and I would have been so much better off if my ancestors had never come here? No. No. Because there's no place else in the world that's better to live, to raise a family, to work, to build a business, to have a life. There's no place in the world where people are more free, where the opportunities are more plentiful. That's why we've got a crisis at our border, because people understand that if I can just get to America, I can have a better life. And very often it's people who've escaped communism and escaped fascism and escaped tyranny who come here and they love this country more than life because they understand better than those of us who are born here what it is to live in a place where freedom is not to be taken for granted. So my brothers and sisters, the question is, what will we do with the gift? What will we do with this gift that God has given us? We ought to treasure the gift. We ought to protect the gift. We ought to nurture the gift. I've got a granddaughter coming in March. The first one, my wife and I, the first grandchild. We've been praying for grandchildren. The first one is on the way. So this issue is no longer academic for me. What kind of nation am I going to pass on to her? What kind of world is she going to grow up in? Is she going to grow up in a world where she's told in elementary school that, well, you might not be a girl. You you might be a boy in a girl's body. And have that kind of confusion sewn into her? Is she going to grow up in a country where she's told, oh, you belong in the oppressed class. Doesn't matter that you've got five degrees between your grandparents, doesn't matter you've got that you've got three between your parents, doesn't matter that you've never been hungry a day in your life, doesn't matter that you've never really been deprived of anything, you are oppressed by virtue of the color of your skin. Is she going to grow up in a world where people are taught to be suspicious of one another and to categorize one another and to think of one another based on historic circumstances, which none of us controlled. I mean, you know, it makes me godly angry to think that a child is made to feel guilty over a history that that child has nothing to do with. Or that that child will be made confused over gender to satisfy some agenda of a teacher's union or a political party or of an ideology. We're supposed to protect our children and shield our children, not abuse our children in our institutions. 
because they're part of this gift. And part of what we want to do is pass on our legacy, a legacy of freedom and hope and opportunity to them. So my brothers and sisters, we've got to treasure this gift. You know, when you talk to people who have actually escaped tyranny, you get an entirely different attitude toward this country. And by the way, I don't care what the color of their skin is. If they've ever lived in a place where they lack freedom and they come here, you know what they look at Americans and go, what's wrong with you people? I mean, do you realize what you've got? Some of you probably heard the story of Virginia Prodan. She grew up in uh, Ceausescu's Romania and she got saved and began to share the gospel with people. And of course, Ceausescu wanted everybody to worship him as God. She refused to do that. She ended up jailed. A woman five feet tall. She ended up jailed, tortured, persecuted on every level. And finally, they made a decision to kill her. She said she was sitting in her office and a man walked in claiming, because she was trying to practice law, a man walked in claiming to be a client, sat down in front of her, and she said, how can I help you? He pulled out a gun, stuck it in her face, and said, I'm here to kill you. And she said she didn't at that point know what to do except to think this is the end of my life. But the Spirit of God spoke to her and said, witness to him. Tell him about me. She said, she said well, before you do that, have you heard about Jesus? And began to talk to that man about God and share scripture. She said, and she could see his eyes get big. And she talked to him. And finally, he put the gun away and allowed him to witness to her. And at the end of that, she said, listen, you know, you can get saved today. Would you like to get saved today? He said, yeah, I would. <laughs> and the assassin got saved. And later on, when she wrote her book, he wrote a chapter of the book testifying at how he was set to kill her and ended up leaving her alone and defending her. And she finally got to America. What do you think she thinks about a country in which you can preach the gospel to anybody you want and say anything you want and your government can't come arrest you and try to kill you because you're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a gift that is the envy of the world when you think about it. And it's up to us to preserve that gift, my brothers and sisters. And I know people will say, yeah, but Bishop Jackson, America's got so many sins. Why would God spare our country? Why would God be good to our country? Look at, look at the things that you can talk about, about how wrong America is. Look at our past. Look at slavery. Look at the, the Native Americans. Well, first of all, let me just say this. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this stuff, this this pernicious demagoguery. And please, I, Christians, don't buy into this. That the problem of the world is Europe. Europeans ruined everything. You know, I, I say, people actually act like the, the, the American continent was a place of such idyllic beauty and such peace and harmony until the Europeans got here. And I mean, no disrespect to Native Americans. They were killing each other. They were fighting over territory. 
They were committing acts of cannibalism. They were involved in all kinds of pagan practices. When Spain brought the horses to this continent for the first time, Native Americans fought each other over the horses because they knew that horses provided a tremendous advantage in battle. I'm not trying to denigrate them. I'm just saying they're no different than anybody else. They had the same sins, the same problems that people all over the world had. And this idea that white people are the problem is a lie out of the pit of hell. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. We've got to put on the whole armor of God. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought under obedience to Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, it's not the skin, it's the sin. That's the problem. And there's only one antidote. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I said, because of the sinfulness of the human heart, if God were to wave his hand over the whole earth and made every single one of us exactly the same complexion, gave every single one of us exactly the same texture hair, except with one difference, some of us with blue eyes, some of us with brown eyes, some of us with hazel eyes, some of us with green eyes, some of us with dark eyes, it wouldn't be long. It would, it would not be long before the green-eyed people would be getting together saying, did you see the way those hazel-eyed people looked at us? You know, they think they're better than we are. Because it's the human condition. I mean, don't, look, look, gangs kill each other over which side of the block you live on. It's what human beings do. And my brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, we have got to reject the tribalism that they're trying to bring back. The whole world fought each other over tribe, over nationality, over family. I, mean, I don't know whether you're aware of it, but the Hatfields and the McCoys were all white. And they say about 100 people died in their feud, and it got to a point where nobody even remembered what started it. But one insult, and it would, it would start all over again because that's what human beings do. But we as Christians, we have something to offer that the world doesn't understand. Right now, we are the stewards of this great gift that God has given us, and we've got to show the world what transcends all of those differences. And there's only one thing that does, that we are all created by Almighty God and that God is the one who sets the standards. We don't get to make up our own as we go. And when we can settle on a common set of, of standards and values and absolutes that we can all abide by, we can all submit to, that becomes unifying for us. That's how this country got started. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by our Creator, with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
it, that those words became the conscience of our nation. We just celebrated Dr. King's birthday not too long ago. But when Dr. King arrived in Washington, D.C. at the Great March, he didn't say, we need to overthrow America. America's a terrible place. America's a racist place. America needs to be destroyed. No. He relied upon the founding principles of this nation. He said when the, the founding fathers wrote the Declaration of Independence, they were writing a check to which every American would fall heir. Say, we've come to the Capitol to cash that check. In other words, he didn't say there was something wrong with the nature of the country, wrong with the founding of the country. He simply said, let's live up to the principles that made this country in the first place, that created this nation in the first place. And by the way, by the way, no nation in the history of mankind has ever founded itself on the principle that rights and freedoms don't come from government, they don't even come from a majority, a vote of the people, but they come from Almighty God. That's our country. That's this nation. And others have drawn inspiration from it throughout human history. The people who the Chinese ran over in Tiananmen Square were quoting the Declaration of Independence. Some of the protests that happened in Taiwan were quoting the Declaration of Independence. There are people all over the world who are calling attention to the principles of America's founding as a way of saying we are inherently entitled to freedom and we will not accept anything less. And yet, yet, yet our, our own folks don't seem to get that. Some of our own people want to tear up the gift. Well, my brothers and sisters, let me just tell you right now, in the name of Jesus, I feel the same way about America, even far more profoundly even, than I feel about that desk. If you break into my house and you try to take that desk my daddy gave me, you and I are going to have a problem. And if you come into my country and you're trying to destroy what God gave me in this nation, you and I are going to have a problem. <laughs> There's going to have to be a showdown. When I joined the Marine Corps in August of 1970, I raised my hand and took an oath to the Constitution of the United States that I would preserve, protect, and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Every veteran in here took that oath. That oath has no expiration date. I am grateful to God to be a member, a citizen of the greatest constitutional republic in the history of mankind, and I'm not letting a bunch of devil-possessed people take this away from me. I, I, I'm not allowing Karl Marx to take control of my nation. We are a constitutional republic. We're not a socialist state, and we're never going to be a socialist state. Not on my watch. Hallelujah. That's why when, when, when I see the denigration of that flag, it, start, it gets to me. I don't I'm not, it's not idolatry. We don't have very many symbols of our national unity, our sense of being one people. That's one of them. And when you attack that flag, you are attacking every American and you are attacking our country. And I say, I stand up for the flag proudly. I stand up for it without apology because that flag represents the ideals of one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 
I reject this tribalism. You know, we fought, we fought a, a, a civil war to end slavery. 600,000 Americans lost their lives to end that institution. And then we had a Halcyon civil rights movement to end some of the racial ideology that perpetuated slavery. And now here we are, 60 years later, being told we need to resegregate again. You got to put this group over here, and you got to put that group over there, and they can't be affirmed unless they're, you know, can I just be completely honest with you all? I'm going to do it myself anyway, but. You know, I, this phrase that goes around, I need somebody who looks like me. Well, first of all, according to my wife, nobody quite looks like me, number one. But, but why not? I need somebody who thinks like me. I need somebody who shares my values. I need somebody who has my vision. I need somebody who wants out of life what I want. What, what is this stuff with the superficial I need somebody who looks like me. Well, based on that, I'm going to tell you something right now. Louis Farrakhan looks like me, but he's not my brother. Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton look like me, but they're not my brothers. Because I'll tell you who my brother and sister is. My brothers and sisters are those who believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins that he rose on the third day with all power in his hands, that he's God come in the flesh to make a way out of no way, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is in all and over all and through all. If you believe that there's only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus, you are my brother, you are my sister in Christ Jesus. We are one family, one body in Christ Jesus. That's my family. That's who I belong to. That's what I'm looking for. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I used to get in trouble. I'm still doing it. When I was in Boston, they got mad at me because actually, if I was in Boston at the time, during the Million Band March, I said, I'm not going. Not only am I not going, I'm telling every Christian, you got no business going. Brother, what's wrong with you? You need to stand in unity with the brothers. And I said, listen, Louis Farrakhan is a false prophet and an idolater and a liar. I wouldn't follow him across the street, let alone follow him to D.C. Oh, I got some nasty hate mail for that. But it was the truth. He needs to be saved. Not followed anywhere. And what did it produce? Nothing. But it got just as bad when Barack Obama got elected president. And I said, I didn't vote for him, wouldn't vote for him, didn't vote for him the first time, didn't vote for him the second time, and wouldn't vote for him if he ever ran for anything again. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, brother. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Listen, Barack Obama is not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not following Christ, I'm not following you, period. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you look like. I'm not turning this country over to godless people because they look like me. I don't care what they look like. I care how they think. I care what's in their heart. The Bible says, see, we quote the scripture, right? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. But we never put it in context because the verse before it says, 
Henceforth know we no one according to the flesh. Say, we knew Christ according to the flesh, but henceforth know we him thus no longer. How can you quote the 17th verse and forget about the 16th verse? The 16th verse is telling you that if you are a new creation in Christ, all things are of God, and God is not looking at skin color. God is looking at the heart. That's what he told Samuel. I don't see as man sees. He said, I look at the heart. My brothers and sisters, it's time if we're going to preserve this great gift we've been given, the United States of America, it's time we began to see the gift we've got in all of its value and all of its goodness and all of its glory. No, we're not perfect. Of course not, because there are people here <laughs> like you and me, and none of us is perfect. But praise God, if you compare America to heaven, okay, maybe you got a case. But comparing it to the rest of the world, you don't. Because there's no place better on earth to live. Now you look, we are going to have the victory over this secularism, this Marxism, all of this, this, this atheism and this godless philosophy that's trying to run its way through our system, taking on many guises. 1619 Project, a lie. Critical race theory, a lie. All this racial politics, a lie. Homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion. When you don't go along with these things, you're a bigot, you're a hater. A lie. But I got news for you. The lies are coming down and the truth is being exalted and God is awakening people all over this country. Hallelujah. Because those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, shall he not with him freely give us all things? Hallelujah. Listen, no weapon formed against you shall prosper every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn this is your heritage as children of god your righteousness comes from him don't you dare back down don't you dare back up don't you dare give up don't you dare give in have you not heard have you not known that the lord the everlasting god the creator of the ends of the earth does not faint neither is weary there is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint and to them that have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Victory. Victory. I've read the back of the book and we win. That old song says, I went to the valley, but I didn't go to stay. My soul got happy and I stayed all day. You know what he'll do? He'll put running in your feet. Look, I just turned 70, but I still got a step in my step and clapping in your hands and shouting in your voice, hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, can you say yeah? Say yeah, say yeah.
God impressed upon me and I'm taking that and impressing it upon you and if every single one of us will do that oh my goodness this nation will become even greater than it's ever been and we will all raise our children in an atmosphere of of love and 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 commitment to decency and honor and integrity because that's what God inspires in us if there's anyone here today who has never made a commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you've heard my testimony, or anyone watching online right now, if you will accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please let us know that. Text res yes, res yes to 94,000. I want to lead you all in a prayer, a prayer of confession. Now, I assume all of you in this room are saved. There may be some exceptions. But let's make a commitment with those watching online and anybody else who might be here who's never made that commitment. You know, going to church doesn't make you saved. You go to church because you are saved. Or you go to church looking for salvation. And then once you're saved, you're glad to be in the house of the Lord one more time. So if there's anybody here who's never made that commitment, your personal commitment to Jesus Christ, anybody watching online, I want you to repeat after me and pray this out of your own heart. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for saving me by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again on the third day to be my Savior, to be my Lord, to be my King. Fully God and fully man. Thank you, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to fulfill the destiny you ordained for me before the foundation of the world. I treasure your gift the gift of salvation, the gift of life, the gift of destiny, where you put me and why you put me here. Help me to walk that out. In Jesus' name, praise God. Give God praise, saints. God bless you. We hope what you heard today has been encouraging and given you new insight into the Word of God. We upload weekly. So join us again next time. Be blessed and enjoy your week.